name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Excited about as our sermon series as we continue the negative things we tell ourselves. Um, there's lots of different titles we could have had for this, the garbage we tell ourselves and various things like that. This was, as I told you last week, this came from a TED Talk that I saw by Guy Lynch, and Guy Lynch is a pretty amazing psychologist, and he was explaining first aid. He told one memorable story, which I'll repeat just in case you weren't here, but we'll hit the highlights. He told the story of a colleague that he worked with about 20 years earlier. She was married for 20 years, and I was just getting ugly divorced, getting back in the dating scene, if you remember this, and she met this guy online, and everything's going great, and the guy's totally into her, and they go to kind of an upscale New York bar, and he's there for 10 minutes and then just says, I'm, I'm not interested. And so she calls, reaches out to her best friend, as he tells the story, reaches out to her best friend, and her best friend says, what do you expect? You're, uh, you have big hips, and you're not that interesting, and why would a successful, handsome guy want to go out with a loser like you? And you know, kind of the turn of the story, as he told it, because I'm listening to this like, what? was it wasn't her best friend, it was herself. And I think we can all relate to that kind of concept when you run into a situation, when you fail, uh, maybe, and I gave an example in my own life, someone, something happens in your own life, you start telling yourself a story, and that story is you jump to this conclusion, goes down like these negative ends. And the question that we came up with and that Winch brought up is do we have the ability to process these thoughts that we have. Physically, we know what to do if we cut our arm. We know what to do even if you break your arm, exactly what you should do. But do we have the, the processes? I changed, went back to Word and I got a better coloring and 3D. So you, this is not going to hit you. Don't worry. That's just 3D effect. So there, there's four questions you have to ask yourself. And, and this is something that I, I, you go through. So what am I saying? So she said in this case uh, that she, this woman, would probably questioning her value questioning if she's lovable, questioning if she'll ever have a relationship again. You know, all these questions are going through. And where does that lead? can lead to isolation because you're afraid to reach out. can lead to self-pity. It can lead to blows to your self-esteem. It can lead to um, just trying to find affection somewhere. You see that in teenage world where they physically try and find affection somewhere because they want some kind of feeling. It can lead to sin. It can lead to dependence. So what am I saying? Where does this lead? And what we're working on is a, a different set of questions. What does God say here? What is God saying? And then where does that lead? And that's kind of where we're going today. So um, when I was a kid, and I've told you this story before, so don't spoil it for other people. I've only got like three stories, and only two of them are good. So I've only got like three stories. So when, it, when I was a kid, uh, I convinced my younger brother, if you can see that picture there, I convinced my younger brother, if you know how this ends, don't spoil it for that one person who hasn't heard this. Uh, when I was a kid, we lived in the stagecoach bed. I convinced my younger brother to tell me what he was most afraid of. So this was obviously a conversation you'd have. And it came from the fact that he would jump away from the bed when he jumped out of the bunk bed. So he would, he'd, he'd be in the bunk bed and he would like shoot way out like this. And so I asked him about it. And he said, well, here, here's the problem. I'm pretty sure someone is going to grab my feet when, when, I jump, when, when I step out of bed. So I will not do it. So naturally, as a loving, caring older brother, I made fun of him until he was completely humiliated, saying only the wussiest of wussies would not step down in the morning. That is the most pathetic thing I've ever heard, and there's no such thing as monsters. And then, of course, the next morning I got up before he did, and I went under his bed and waited. So I just, and I waited, and I waited, and I waited. And finally I hear this, like, whew, whew. 
And then he puts his feet down onto, I could still picture it, it's a, an ammunition box, a wooden ammunition box. He puts both feet down, like firmly, and I summon the greatest Scooby-Doo villain sound ever. Do you ever know, Scooby-Doo has been on for 20 years, and they have one laugh track, and they have one villain sound. And what's that villain sound? <laughs> right? I mean, like, really? Like, the clown does that, and the monster, and the flying pterodactyl, but... Um, but so I, I let that go and grabbed like a cobra on both of his feet. And he screamed like the loudest scream of all time and just pure satisfaction. Uh, we still talk. You know, I just talked to him last week, so we're, we're good. So. But I, I'm guessing, I'm, and I'm guessing, that if I'd ask you your biggest fears, this is probably not going to be one of them. It's, I've never seen an adult jump away from, I've never seen an adult jump out of bed or up from bed. Much less, like, who would want to go through the work of, like, throwing your back out just to get away from the edge, right? You just, like, get out of bed, and you're like, Whew. Right? I mean, nobody, no one jumps away from it as an adult. So I'm guessing if I ask you your biggest fears, that's not going to be it. Even if you kind of, on paper, say I'm afraid of, like, spiders. Is that really your biggest fear? Uh, snakes? Is this really the biggest fear? Is it, um, you know, a monster or something like that? It, unlikely as an adult, Unlikely that this is an, as an adult. My guess is, if you, like in your own moments, you said, what is my real biggest fear? You'd say, I'm worried about being alone forever. I'm worried that my life isn't worth anything. I'm worried that I'm unforgivable. I'm worried if I confess my sins like I should, that someone will never look at me the same. I'm worried that people are going to find out I'm a fraud. I'm going to worry that people fig- will figure out that I don't know as much as I say I do right? You know, these are the fears that wake up and keep adults awake, that you're going to be found out, that you're going to be alone, or you're unlovable, or you're unforgivable, and these are the things that bother us. But with each of those fears, I think, comes a story. Even as a kid, there's a story, right? There's someone under the bed, and the story is that that person is going to grab your ankles, right? That's the story, and there's a story that people have an unknown fear of spiders. Like, spiders are this big. What's the fear? That it's going to shoot up like the rabbits in, uh, you know, like just shoot right on your neck and take you out. Or like a snake is going to do that. Or a, a clown is actually just going to be a clown. That's going to be, that's the story. That's it. So there's stories that go with it, and there's a story that goes with each of your fears. And we, we talk about fight or flight. And fear, I think, is a powerful, powerful motivator. We could say love would be a powerful motivator. We see Jesus do that on the cross. You see that for what you do for your kids or your spouse. But I think fear is almost as powerful. And, you know, fight or flight is helpful, like we said with the kids. If there's a dinosaur on the playground, you know I have to run or try and fight this thing. That's good. It keeps you alive. But the same thing causes a reaction in your own life. If you are afraid of being rejected, what are you going to do? You're not going to reach out into someone else's life because you're afraid you're going to be rejected. You might not. You have a job that you do not like. There's another job that you would like. What happens? You won't even apply for that job you're afraid you're going to be rejected, right? Fear is a power, there's a story, and it drives you to do different things. And it may, like I said, be afraid to just confess your sins to someone, as God calls us to do. You're just not going to do that. You may not love someone as completely as you should, because you're afraid, what if they just don't love me back the same way? Right? So, so fear is very, very powerful, and each time that fear has a, a story with it that changes our behavior, one of those big fears in America, this ironically does not happen in other countries, but in America, right around about my age, I'm 40, 
46 to about 66, they talk about midlife crisis. And there's lots of articles. There's lots of debates. I'm reading these articles. They're not that interesting, for the way. But there's a couple things that kind of slam together right around this time of your life. And we, we're a culture that loves youth. One, you figure out you're getting older. Has anyone discovered that? Right, that's why we don't jump out of the bed, right? <laughs> You'll discover it real quick. Try that a couple days in a row. The, uh, so, so one, we're getting older. Two, you recognize your own mortality because your parents who, like, they, they were, they're your parents and now getting sick. You're taking care of your parents. Uh, maybe your parents have died. And so you step back. And work starts to collide because you have these dreams. The problem with getting old is, when you're young, you, you have all this hope ahead of you, right? And it's like this scale, and you just roll down that scale, and behind you is your past, but suddenly you get to a point where you're like, wow, my past is way bigger than the hope I have for the future. So this, this idea that I'm going to really accomplish something, that I'm going to do something worthwhile, that I'm going to be a success in my field, you start to wonder that. You, you look around at other colleagues, and you see what they have done. Um, you look at other families, you look at your own kids who are now, you're going to be empty nesters. Now you start to reevaluate your own relationship. All these things are colliding. And I just thought I'd mention, if you're worried about it, just move to Japan. There's no evidence whatsoever for midlife crises in Japan. Did you know that? Uh, probably because, in India as well. Uh, most likely because they don't worship youth like we do. It's okay to grow old in Japan. So that's where I'm going to, I can't afford it, but it's okay to grow old in Japan, not here. All these things collide. And with that comes a story, right? I mean, when you reevaluate these things, with that comes a story that says, okay, I only have so much time on this left, and you see this again and again. Do I really want to be with this person? And so out of the blue, you see these parents that have been married for 25 years, and they're getting a divorce, and I do not, I do not understand this. So that's, that's where they're at. Or it leads you to feel inferior around colleagues that are more successful. Because when you're young, you're going to, oh, I'll just catch them someday, like no big deal. I, I'm going to get there. But suddenly when you're older, you're like, my window's kind of gone. And this is about as good as it's going to get. And suddenly people used to come to you for opinions, and now they don't care what you say. And they find some new hot shot and things like that. It's always amazing to see these stories, I thought, as a kid. I used to watch, like in footy jammies, I'd be watching the, the TV shows, and they'd have these specials about like, okay, here's a kid your age that started like feeding the homeless. And I should feel real good about that, right, as a kid. And how does that make you feel when you see that? I felt terrible. I'm like, what am I doing? Like, I'm eating Lucky Charms, eating footy jammies, and they're feeding the homeless. Like, I have, and even Kid President, I wonder how my son reacts to, like, a, have you ever guys seen Kid President? He's pretty funny. But I can laugh because I'm old. Like, that's okay. But at your own age, I think it'd be hard because you're like, what am I doing? Like, I can't even talk in front of my school and here's this kid who's doing YouTube videos, probably making 10 grand a month every time he pumps them out. Like, what am I doing? So I think there's a time in our life where everybody wonders, like, am I going to accomplish anything? I have this fear that I just, I'm never going to do it. And I would share passages, uh, Psalm 41. So do not fear, for I am with you. This is God talking. This is maybe someone's confirmation verse. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Have you heard of this verse before? Okay. I, I think, I, I was just thinking about this. Uh, I think it's helpful in a moment of fear, not a life of fear. So let me explain that. If I was about to walk through a dark alley, I thought of this verse, God is with me. I like that. If I'm about to go speak in front of people I've never met before, because I know you guys. 
Um, but if I go in front of a group I've never known, there's, like, there's, there's a fear to it. And I think, okay, God is with me. I'm a, maybe you don't like to fly. And you think of God's hands on that plane as it takes off and lands, and you think, okay, God is with me. I do not fear. I don't know if this is the verse that brings comfort when you, you say, is my life worthwhile? Confronted by a spider, God is with me. Confronted by um, a snake, God is with me. You know, a moment of fear, I think this makes sense, that God is right there. But when you're questioning your whole existence, I think you have to tell yourself a longer story. So let me, let me tell you a longer story. Uh, a couple things that I would look at. King David, um, King David is uh, the youngest of eight brothers, if you know this story. He's the youngest of eight brothers, and they, they've got a King Saul, and he's a stud. Call it, Saul, they say, is a, a foot taller than everyone else. God is no longer happy with David, I mean with Saul, and he says, hey, we need a new king. This is what, we need a new king. This is the deal. So he sends his prophet Samuel to go into the um, Jesse's sons, Jesse's house. So they go, they go there, and um, the, the prophet is showing up to find the next king, and the brothers line up, right? This feels like a Disney movie or something like that. The brothers all line up. They don't even invite, they don't even invite David to the dinner. Like the, new, the famous prophets come into town. They don't even invite him over. And he just goes and he watches the sheep. And they start going down the line, and Samuel's like, okay, it must be this one, must be this one, must be this one. And let me see if this verse came through. Oh, it did not. I'll come back to that. Must be this one, must be this one. And uh, it, finally, it's, it, it's none of those. And God says, I, I'm not looking at the outward appearance like people do. I'm, I'm looking at the heart. So they get David. They get David to come all the way in from the field, and here he shows. I don't know if he had a cleanup or something like that, but David finally shows up. And there's a process that God does to say that you are the one I choose. Do you know what that process is? They anoint him. That's the phrase. They anoint him that you, you are the chosen one. You are the one that's going to do something significant. So what's that have to do with Elon Musk? If you didn't recognize Elon Musk. There's an article that just came out from CDOT. Does anyone see that? About the new Hyperloop. Colorado is one of 35... Um, areas that is narrowed for the possible installation of the Hyperloop. Did anyone hear this? Okay, this, so the story was that it was going to come all the way down from um, Fort Collins, and I thought that's really great. You could just shoot up to New Belgium at 500 miles an hour. This is perfect. And it goes all the way down to Pueblo because someone wants to go to Pueblo. I don't know who, but someone does. Someone will pay for those tickets. Maybe they'll fill it up with coal or something like that, and it'll go down for the steel. I'm not sure what will happen. So instead, that's not the full story. The story is actually it's going to run from Greeley to the airport. <laughs> I, I'm guessing because of land, right? I mean, land, if you buy the planes up there, it's probably, what, 75 cents an acre? So that, that's my guess, is that they could make, that's the pitch they're putting to the, the Hyperloop. But the Hyperloop is, it runs on air, it's in a tube, and it goes up to 500 miles an hour. And so you could, the ultimate goal for this whole project is to go from Los Angeles to uh, San Francisco. That land is not 75 cents an acre, so I think they want to test it at a few places to try it out. But we're one of the finalists. CDOT is pushing for it. So I read Elon Musk's, I've told you that, his autobiography, his biography about a year ago. He is the founder of SpaceX, which is the, the group that has sent rockets up to space, and then the, the rockets have actually landed back on Earth, and they're okay, in the same spot they were supposed to. Not just like, anyone could do that. I can, I can make a ball land on Earth. But they, they shot up to space, and they came back down. They landed where they're supposed to, which is a big deal. Then also, uh, he's the founder of Tesla, the electric car company that is enormously successful. And he's the major owner in Solar City. that's going to, um, the, the concept of getting um, solar power, but then they're going to put it into the massive batteries so that it, this is actually practical for houses rather than just like, well, it's warm, you're good. 
when it's not, you're not. So all this goes down. So I read the book. It was the same thing like Kick President. I read it and I thought, I, two things I learned. One, I have no interest to hang out with Elon Musk ever. That's, that's, that's rule number one. If I see him outside someplace, I'm, we're good here. I, I don't need to go hang out with you. Number two is I have done absolutely nothing with my life. It's like, or my day. Have you ever read like a guy like this? He's got like handlers and he's on a jet. He's on a helicopter. He goes to this company, to that company. He's so smart that he fully understands everything that's going on with spaceships and with electric cars. You know, it takes me like 20 minutes to build a Lego set. So I don't think I'm going to fit in the same category uh, of the Elon Musk. So you just get this sense that, you know, where am I going? Where am I going to, am I going to do anything? And so that's where we're coming around from. And we start telling ourselves this story, am I ever going to succeed with something? But what does God have to say to it? So let's go back to David. The Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things the people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. People look at the outward performance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And then what is really awesome is that God uses the same language This is our bigger story. God uses the same language to describe his relationship with you. So with King David, he goes all this way to anoint to say that you are the one. And God says that same thing about each one of you. And I think that's a beautiful concept here. It says, now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He has anointed us. He has chosen us. Set his seal of ownership on us. God says, you're mine. And put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. I think being chosen, though, is only part of the deal. I think it's, it's only part of the deal. God has set you aside to say, I have chosen you, but that's only part of the deal. Because when you're chosen, if you're the chosen one, uh, if you're in, in, in work and you, you, there's someone you could identify at your work, at, here's the next person who's coming up. They say that's the chosen one. People can see that. You can see that in the NBA. They watch LeBron James games. They were televised on ESPN when he was in high school. Like here's the next one who's coming. If you're chosen, that's not it. What you actually have to do is you have to do something with that. That means you're chosen to do something amazing. And we see that in the sports world, but the question I think we have to ask ourselves is what am I chosen to do? Like, okay, God chooses me. That's great. And what's really interesting is that Jesus himself was chosen, but what was Jesus chosen to do from an earthly perspective? You know, it's, it's limited success, I think, on this earth. I mean, if you'd say he was a king, he wasn't very good at it. And it, it, he had some followers, but really not that many. There are Christian churches that are bigger than the amount of followers that Jesus had on this planet. Does that make sense? Like, from an earthly perspective, it doesn't line up. And even as he got to the cross, like he's getting ready to do like the very thing he came on the earth. And what do people from the outside, they, they stood watching, it says in Luke 23. And rulers even sneered at him. They said he saved others, let him save himself if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. Like you got to do something with it. And so from a Christian perspective, when we're saying like, am I going to accomplish anything? One is to say, okay, God has chosen me. But the second thing, what has God chosen us to do? The reality, we'll come back to this, the reality is you're probably not going to do something that the world even notices. This is not a high school pump-up speech, right? You're, you're not. If you, if you haven't done it already, it's very unlikely that you're going to become super famous. 
that people outside even of our town or a few other places are going to know of you. In your tiny industry, people can know of you. Maybe you're the rest teacher people recognize in your school, okay? Maybe you're the favorite nurse at your hospital, okay? Maybe it, when people really run into a jam at your company, they go to you. But are people from other countries calling you to say, like, are people saying, you've got to figure out this problem for the world? Anyone said, hey, have you ever thought about running for president? Has that ever entered? Anyone ever told you that? The chances are you're not going to do anything that the world notices, and you know what? The world doesn't notice anyway. It doesn't. Does anyone know who invented the internet? Al Gore, right? <laughs> Duh. <laughs> the, right? So you could look at any, just about anything significant unless their name is somehow directly attached to it. Most of us don't know. Thomas Edison, the light bulb, okay. Um, but, and Henry Ford got down the, you know, the process of doing car stuff, okay. You know, there's a few people that you can think of, but most of the time the world doesn't care. Like the world just keeps moving. You could have some big award at your company and like two days later, you could get fired. Like that's just how it works in this world. The world does not care. So what can you do when God says this? We are God's handiwork. We're God, God didn't just choose us, but God says, I crafted you together, created in Christ Jesus because of that relationship of Christ who goes all the way to a cross, who accomplishes not just prophecy, but he accomplishes what he came to this earth to do, which is actually die on a cross and rise again to prove that you are forgiven. What does he say? In Christ Jesus, to do good works, which God prepared in advance for you, in advance for us to do. Good works, things that are accomplishing, things that mean something, are directly connected to people. Directly connected to people. And it's not like I can just go to work and work really hard. When God says, I've called you to do good works, he's called you directly to work with people. And there's a phrase that Mother Teresa says, and I've said that. Mother Teresa says, if you can't feed 100 people, you can feed one. So where does this all shake down to? There is no one who is better positioned to love your spouse than you. Nobody. There's nobody who can pour into their life. There is no one who can forgive. There is no one who can console. There is no one who can love. There is no one who can show intimacy. No one better positioned to do that than you. There is no one to love your parents in better position than you. There's no one to love your colleague that you work next to than you. There is no one better positioned to love your neighbor than you are. Like You're not going to import a neighbor from two neighborhoods over to say, okay, show love to my neighbor. You're the one who's there. Who is better positioned to show your kids God's love? Who is better positioned to tell them a new story when they have doubts about themselves and they have their own fears, to say, this is what you're telling yourself, this is where it leads, who is better positioned to say, let's hear what God has to say? Who is better positioned to do that? Who is better positioned to tell yourself? We all have fears. We all have stories that come with it. Who is better positioned to look in your own heart and say, I've got a God who loves me. I have a God who has chosen me. I've got a God who's anointed me and called me to do good works. Who is better to do that than you? It's been phrased a hundred different ways, but God has given you a story. And I don't think you're going to accomplish things that are going to change the world. If you do, you can write me from your jet and say, see, I told you so. And by write me, I say, give me a high five because I'm going to be riding with you. So if you do, awesome. But it's very unlikely. And this has been said a hundred different ways. You might not change the world, but you can change the world for someone. 
And I think that that's what we do. Am I worth something? Am I accomplishing something? Take a look at the relationships that God has put in your life. Think of the abilities that God has put in your life and say, what can I do to tell a different story to them? And we just heard it in Isaiah. God's word is powerful. God's word is effective and it accomplishes what he desires. And what does he desire? He desires the whole planet in heaven with him and we're part of that process to accomplish much. Amen. Heavenly Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we, we have fears that are debilitating, fears that stop us from reaching into the lives of other people. I think we could all say that. We're afraid that if we really do love someone like we want to, they're going to reject us. Uh, we could say we're afraid to reach out to a neighbor because what if they, they laugh at us? We can say, what if they, they make fun of us or what if they don't uh, receive it or what if they take it the wrong way? But instead, you've given us, uh, we're chosen we're not just on the, the scrap heap. You have said you're the one, and, and you've chosen each of us to live at a specific time, at a specific place, in specific relationships. So we ask that we cherish these relationships, and we think about our spouse, we think about our kids, we think about our parents, think about a boyfriend or girlfriend, we think about the, the people we work with, we think about our neighbors, we think about our community, the world, really. And we say, what, what can we do with the abilities you've given us, and how can we change the world for them? And the most powerful way, of course, that we can do that is tell them a story, and it's not a made-up story. It's a story of a Savior who has not only chosen us, you've chosen them so that they could live with you forever. Amen.